Hello, Brian's and possibly not Brian's. This is all the Brian's. We're at Brian Interviews Brian's, and this episode is brought to you by the new SportsTechWorld.com, founded by Brian O'Driscoll, an Irish Brian. SportsTechWorld.com. Get Brian deals on all your sports tech stuff. So this episode's Brian is quite a prolific Brian, so let's get started. I'm uh, Dr. Brian Kloss. I am a fellow in comparative politics at the London School of Economics and a columnist for the Washington Post. Yeah, and we're, uh, we're at the London School of Economics now, enjoying some beautiful London weather, um, which, yeah, sarcasm there a little bit. Um, and this is the first international episode I've actually done, but as listeners can tell by your accent, I ended up finding another American. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so and you've recently come out with a, a book that I'd like to ask you a few questions about um, sure. called How to Rig the Election. But first, like, where can Brian's uh, find this book? It, it'll be out in the U.S. in uh, May 22nd. It's out now in the U.K., and you can find it on Amazon or any bookshop, pretty much. So uh, it's with Yale University Press. Yeah, so I saw that you've uh, you've written a couple previous books, the the Despot's Apprentice, the Despot's Accomplice. Um, how did this specific book come about? Uh, it comes out of my research. Um, it's co-authored with Professor Nick Cheeseman at the University University of Bur- uh, Birmingham, and uh, who's not a Brian, unfortunately. Unfortunately, but, um, yes. but uh, he, you know, so we we basically went around the world and we were, we did election observation. We interviewed people in positions of power who had rigged elections, opposition candidates coup plotters and rebels and all these different people who have a stake in trying to obtain power um, and found some hilarious stories, uh, tragicomic stories, I should say, about how elections are rigged and how uh, these despots are basically outsmarting, uh, unfortunately, often international observers and subverting democracy. Yeah, so how does the co-writing process work? Because this is the first book I, it seems like you've co-written, right? Yeah, so it works really well. I mean, did, bizarrely... Did Brian do all the work? <laughs> so it, was, it worked out really well because uh, unusually my co-author Nick and I agree on almost everything. Um, so, you know, we, we, we would draft chapters into, independently. We'd split up the work and then uh, add to it. And it was sort of uh, as seamless as you could imagine, which I do not think is normal for co-authorship. So I, I was very happy that that happened, despite him not being a Brian. So is it like that you take tackle specific chapters, yeah. then he tackles others, or you, you do a draft, and then he does a draft? And yeah, so we, what we actually did was we said, look, uh, the average chapter is going to be like 7,000 to 8,000 words. So each we split it up, and then uh, each of us drafted the first 5,000 words of a given chapter, and then the other one added the rest. And then we sort of refined it to make sure it was seamless, et cetera. But it's, uh, yeah, it was sort of a back and forth uh, writing process. It was, it was pretty painless. Um, and, and as I said, it helps that Nick and I see eye to eye. The thing that's fun about the book is that, you know, it's, it's obviously a serious topic. It's about how democracy is, is failing in a lot of places, which is uh, a tragic problem for billions of people. Uh, it, it, but it also gets broken up with these sort of amusing stories of how these authoritarian figures outsmart uh, election observers. So a few examples just quickly. One is um, there is an example in Russia where a candidate was named Oleg Sergeyev who was running for the mayor of St. Petersburg and there was no partisan affiliation on the ballot so the regime just found a bus driver and a pensioner who were also named Oleg Sergeyev. They stuck all three of them on the ballot and then voters didn't know which one was the real one and they split the vote three ways. Um, And there was also a, a case in Ukraine where Opposition areas, uh, they put disappearing ink pens into the precincts that were strongholds for the opposition, so people would cast their ballots, and then 10 minutes later, the ballot would appear to be blank. So there's things like this, or, or even in Azerbaijan, there was an iPhone app that was uh, produced 
yeah, where, where the ruling regime accidentally uploaded the results the day before the election. So, you know, even though it's a serious topic, there are these sort of silly examples of uh, absurd types of election rigging that unfortunately are reasonably common in the rest of the world. Yeah, it seems like there's like a lot of fun anecdotes in the book to make it a little more, uh, you know, some add some entertainment along with the theories. Yeah. Um, is there any sort of uh, anecdotes from some of your research that you've had to do in the field, which sounds like you've done gone into some very dangerous places that may be not in the books or uh, in the books that are, have something particularly interesting? Yeah, so um, two of the places, uh, I've done field work in many different countries, but two of the ones that sort of uh, were fascinating experiences. One was in Madagascar, where I've, I've been six, six times now. And it's, uh, it's a country where, I mean, you just can't make up the politics, right? So in, in, in 2009, there was a coup d'etat where the military overthrew the elected leader, who was effectively a yogurt kingpin, who made all his money uh, selling dairy products. Uh, he was overthrown by a 34-year-old radio disc jockey. Um, who then ruled for five years. And I, I met the yogurt kingpin uh, a couple times and had breakfast with him. And it was this amazing experience where you're on this like long table and it's filled with food. And it's just the two of us, right? There's like 30 feet of table filled with food for two people. And he's got this little bell that he rings whenever he wants something and two people f run in, you know, this, this whole sort of moment. Um, but one of the things that he did with election manipulation that I think is reasonably clever, uh, you had to hand it to him, was there was a, a law in Madagascar that you had to register to be a candidate in person in Madagascar. And his rival was forced into exile. So when he tried to come back to register, uh, the president picked up the phone and closed all the airports in the country. And he did that five different times until eventually the deadline passed and the guy, you know, couldn't register. And, and legally speaking, everything was done properly because the law says you have to be there. And the guy couldn't get back because the president closed the airport. So he was disqualified and, and wasn't able to run. So, you know, it's, it's sort of like putting that into perspective in a Western context. Just imagine how Democrats would feel if, you know, their candidate had been disqualified in such a manner. It doesn't exactly create stability or legitimacy for the election. So, um, but when you meet these people, they're, they're, they really are uh, cunning, right? I mean, that's why I think about election rigging as sort of this game of whack-a-mole where you come up with a way to sort of police something and they just come up with a different strategy. And, and they're always sort of one step ahead because they understand how the game works and they play it very well. Yeah, I mean, it's it, so this is like one tactic that someone uses in one particular context, but your book covers the range, like all the different tactics that are out there. You know, it's how to rig an election, so it's, you know, it's a great title, but it's also like, are you, are you worried now that if there's an authoritarian Brian out there who's like... <laughs> gets this the book falls into the wrong Brian hands like you know how do you sleep at night basically what I'm asking you <laughs> <laughs> well so the, the the subtext of the book is how to save democracy right so it's, okay. it's less catchy uh, title yeah it, it, well that's I think the, the sort of idea here is that we say look here's how the pros do it and and it may be news to everybody who hasn't thought about election rigging but I don't think our book is news to people who rig elections right in other words they mm. already sort of know how to do it so what we're saying is like look if this is how they do it, we need to figure out what better ways to stop them from doing it. And we're hoping that by getting this message out to people sort of in policymaking world, in international politics, etc., 
that they'll actually be able to outsmart the uh, the cunning Brian's of the world who may come up with you know election rigging tactics that we haven't thought about. But yeah, I mean, obviously, <laughs> you you don't you 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 certainly hope that the uh, the people buying the book are not autocrats who are trying to just you know destroy democracy and thinking, wow, that's a really smart idea. I hadn't thought of that. I um, mean, yeah, it's like I mean, it's a great book because it's like I. I I've always just thought about, yeah, like, countries that seem like, oh, they have elections, but, like, oh, I'm sure there's, like, they're rigging it somehow, but I don't really know how. This this book really does just spell out the how. I mean, then I'll, you go through, like, the, the tools in the dictator's toolbox, you yep. call it, where it was, like, gerrymandering, vote-buying, repression, digitally hacking, stuffing the ballot, playing international community, all depending on, like, the types of dictators or autocrats or whatever. You have, like, the terminology in there that gets more into the details. Um... And yeah, one one of the questions that you asked in there, which was interesting, was like, what's harder for a dictator, winning elections or banning them? Mm. And the assumption was the winning, yeah, that's assuming right. winning, but it was actually easy for them to extend power by having multi-party elections um, because it just legitimizes them and gets yeah. them like international aid and stuff like that. Um, so is this true for all types of dictators that actually winning elections is easier now to extend their power, or is it just for certain types of dictators? Yeah, so that's that's one of the big findings, I think, of the book that's surprising, is that people sort of assume, why would a dictator hold an election? And what we actually find is that it, it makes them more likely to retain power if they hold elections than if they don't hold an election. Uh, and, the, and the reason for that is, as you say, legitimacy, because there's only a few countries in the world that just do not hold elections, right? I mean, and those are sort of international pariahs for the most part. Countries like North Korea where, uh, you know, or, or where the election is so blatant where it's literally just one party that it's not really an election. But having the illusion of multi-party democracy is really valuable to a dictator because they can say to their people, look, I'm actually as popular as I say I am. Here's the evidence. I won 96% of the vote. Um, and, and, and actually, um, they use they use elections also as tools of control. Sometimes they can try to get certain friendly candidates to run against them uh, as a way to be perceived as having genuine opposition when they don't. So um, what we what we basically find is that virtually across the board, it is useful to hold an election so long as you manipulate it. Right? Uh, dictators that hold genuinely free and fair elections have a short shelf life because. In most cases, they don't provide high-quality uh, public services or anything like that. People don't like them. So, um, and that's why most elections in authoritarian contexts are blatantly rigged um, in some way or another. Um, so which of the six uh, election rigging tactics should people in the United States be most afraid of since it's, you know, in that context is very different than some of these yeah, other so, contexts? So ballot box stuffing doesn't happen in the United States. Yeah. Fraudulent voting doesn't really happen in the United States despite what Trump says. Um, the real the real problems are voter suppression and gerrymandering and hacking. So uh, gerrymandering you know, is, is basically allowing politicians to pick their own voters and it's got a huge effect. The uncompetitive elections in the United States I think one of, are, are one of the biggest problems. So in 2016 in the House races, the US House, um, the average margin of victory was over 37%, which is crazy. I mean that means that the sort of normal House race was 70-30, right, between the Democrat and the Republican one way or the other. And you think about what that does to democracy. I mean, it rewards extremism because you're never going to lose an election um, by pandering to your base, but you might lose an election by compromising, right? And it also creates voter apathy because if you're a Democrat living in a 70% Republican district or you're a Republican living in a 70% Democratic district, why bother voting, right? And that's why we have such poor turnout in a lot of elections, one of the reasons why anyway. 
Um, the voter suppression issue is a big one where, where higher uh, restrictions on voting tend to disenfranchise minorities and poor people. Uh, it's well documented. And it's why it was a strategy, for example, in, in Jim Crow laws in the South in the, uh, as recently as the 60s, where they had you know, these literacy tests that disqualified black voters. Um, now you have that with restrictive voter identification laws that sometimes require voters who don't have a car to go and wait in line at the DMV to buy a driver's license in order to vote, right, which effectively can act as a poll tax. Um, so, and, and then the new frontier is the hacking stuff, which we all have been exposed to in 2016, but I think is going to get much worse before it gets better because you don't yeah, this need this is the stuff I was most yeah. afraid of as far as, like, not most, I guess just don't understand as much just because it's like I don't you never got I never going to understand the latest bit of technology just sure. that not in that field so it's just an easy thing to just be afraid of I feel like yeah but I think the fear is justified so there's like multiple levels of digital manipulation there's the hacking into candidates where you air the dirty laundry of one candidate but not the other to try to skew their perception right this which is what happened in 2016 I think if you'd hacked Donald Trump's servers we would have found a lot of stuff right um, but instead, you just saw the negatives from Hillary Clinton, and it skewed, skewed the election perception in that way. There's also the risk of hacking the actual voting machines, because in a lot of states, um, there are digital voting machines that are prone to hacking. And there was a case where researchers at the University of Michigan tried to get the attention of the U.S. government by making the voting machine play the Michigan fight song, University of Michigan fight song, every time a, a ballot was cast. And then finally, the U.S. government said, oh, oh we actually should pay attention to this. Um, there, there's not, that didn't happen in 2016, as far as we know, but it's still a vulnerability that could happen. Um, I think you mentioned, though, was somewhere in the book, it was like, was those, were those the researchers that also like, were able to use Bluetooth to get through this, like, uh, this sort of hack-proof like election ballot system that India uses yeah. that has like a single chip for each ballot cast that then gets tamper-proof, supposedly. Yeah, so, and that's why, I mean, I think that the, the bottom line for ev pretty much everyone who studies election digital technology is that there is no such thing as a tamper-proof election. Uh, and, and as a result of that, it's a question of do we really want to digitize this stuff? Because, you know, really we just need paper ballots. We need, we need ballots that allow you to actually go back and look at what the voter intended and actually to be able to recount them. If you have a digital voting machine, no matter how seemingly tamper-proof it is, there's no paper trail on some of them, right? It's just what's on the chip. And, and there is no reason why there, there cannot be uh, a very innovative or, or savvy hacker who's able to basically flip votes, where they say every time you vote for the Democrat, record it as Republican or vice versa. And that would be a nightmare scenario. I mean, it'd be a disaster for, for democracy. Yeah, so, I mean... We'll start to move away a little bit away from the book now, but like as being abroad, it feels you know way nice to be away from like the U.S. news cycle. But do you, you know, you seem like someone who has a substantial media diet. Um, like, what do you primarily consume out here, and do you find it easier to analyze like U.S. government and politics from afar? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things. So I I tend to read uh, media that's both U.K. and U.S. based, right? Um, and and I think that happens when you're an American living outside the U.S. But what, what I think is really striking when you live abroad as an American, especially in this moment with Trump, is just how there is a, a real divide in America where people genuinely like him, whereas here, it's just not like that. I mean, there's just there's almost universal disdain for Donald Trump abroad. Um, and, and that's something that's really, I think, would be eye-opening to even his most ardent supporters that he is savaging America's reputation. I mean, just the way that people think about him. I found out Have you had any, like, tangible, notice any tangible effects of our perception, the change of our perception abroad? So, yeah, I mean, I think that there was, there was a moment, uh, a really striking moment that's always stuck with me, where 
I don't know if you remember uh, last year there was a terror attack on London Bridge. And yeah. The way I, I was about a mile away from it uh, in my flat, and the way I found out about the terror attack happening a mile away from me was because my phone buzzed notifying me that Trump had tweeted, basically attacking the mayor of London for letting you know Muslims come into the to the city, right? I mean, and, and the thing that's amazing about that is, you know. Londoners don't have any sort of nuance about this. They think, oh my gosh, how can this guy be such a callous monster? And so you, you have people then talking to you. How, they ask you, how did this happen? How do people still support this person? Because their experience all of a sudden, it's very much in their face. Now, thankfully, I think a lot of people abroad recognize that Americans are not Donald Trump, right? That they're diff two different things. But there's sort of this moment in conversation you have where people are trying to figure out whether you're a Trump supporter. Because they're going to behave very differently to you if, if you are. Um, and they want to be polite and sort of suss it out of you. So, you know, it's almost like you end up saying, oh, don't worry. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I'm not. Um, which I think is something that didn't used to happen when you were a Democrat or Republican abroad, right? So it's a real shift. So I, I think it's a shame and I think it's something where um, it's more based on values than policy, right? It's not they, they don't dislike Trump because of tax policy. They dislike Trump because of misogyny or sexism or... Uh, a lack of democratic values or whatever it is where he doesn't seem to stand with Western allies. And I think that's really uh, doing damage over here. So like the same way that they're trying to, you know, they, they want to suss out, you know, which side you, you stand on because everything, because it seems to be the, everything is so partisan in the U.S. Is there the same kind of, there isn't the same kind of divide or it seemed like that was the case with around Brexit. And in London, it's probably not as much of a divide here, but um, have you noticed that I guess what are your where does the Brexit and the voting of Brexit and all of that? Kind of, do you have any thoughts on how that fits into the larger framework of what you've been talking about in the book as well? Yeah, I mean it's it's just a striking moment in Western societies of hyperpolarization almost everywhere, right? Where where societies are really divided. And you have a you have a similar dynamic. I mean, with Brexit, you're right about that because like, I I was at a dinner last night where we were chatting and, and we got about two hours in and Brexit came up and everyone said, oh my God, we made it two hours. You know, like, yeah. like it's one of these things where everyone's trying to avoid it because it's a divisive topic and people have strong views on it, sort of similar to how... So you stick to the royal wedding. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's why those, 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 you know, those sort of uh, puff stories end up being... Uh, things that people latch onto because they're they're not divisive, but yeah, I mean, I think there is a real divide here, and there's a real question about um, you know what what it, what is going to come in the future. I, I think there's sort of a parallel where even people who are very pro Brexit, the same way that people are very pro Trump, they're sort of like, yeah, things aren't going perfectly, right? Uh, a lot of Trump supporters, not all of them, but a lot of them will acknowledge that maybe this wasn't exactly what we hoped for. With Brexit, there's a lot of sort of worrying signs too about the economy and things like that. So, uh, but it's it it is divisive. It is um, really polarizing, and and yeah, it's a it's a yeah. There are some parallels. So. so, as someone who's like quite active on like Twitter, you're not immune from the divide in the U.S. by any means. So, I'm curious if you had any interesting anecdotes of a firsthand experience among dealing with trolls, etc. Yeah, I, I one of my. Uh, this is very apropos for the podcast. It's a Brian one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I talked about this actually um, in a TED talk I gave, but it's uh, I, I got this email from uh, after I, I went on CNN and I said something to the effect of, in democracies, you shouldn't label political rivals as treasonous scum simply because they disagree with you about tax policy, right? So sort of <laughs> a reasonable thing, I thought. Uh, I got this hate mail from this guy named Max who started his message by saying, brain. Uh, oh. which, you know, happens to every Brian. 
Same uh, words. But it's always, <laughs> but it's always, you know. At first, I think I'm like, wow, he thinks I'm smart. You know, this is great. Uh, but it says brain, and then the, the next line is, "You are a hate-filled, poorly educated Nazi clown leftist cancer on humanity," uh, which you know I memorized because it stuck with me. And then the next line was, uh, "You are evil," in, in all caps. So, um, <laughs> and then the, the, the kicker of it, you know, it starts with brain, and then it ends, "Best wishes, Max." Best wishes. <laughs> Best wishes. Like, okay, I guess you must have a formulaic ending uh, on your hate mail. But, but yeah, so um, it's one of these experiences. From the like, Midwest, you got to be polite. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know. But, it, but you, I mean, you get this, the, the brain thing is, is something that every Brian has had. Um, for me, it started with, like, second grade Valentines, right? Like, uh, yeah, in, in class, everybody goes around and puts a Valentine in your shoebox, and, like, half of mine were to brain. Um, but, yeah, you get this a lot. That was your most memorable instance, probably, or what? Yeah, of the, of the brain ones, I think. Yeah, the brain ones. Uh, but you get, I mean, you do get this where people attack you on Twitter and they misspell every word, but they also misspell your name. Yeah, uh, and it's yeah, it's very funny. Well, yeah, we'll we'll dive into the the Brian questions here in just one second. I mean, and actually, you know, just thanks for uh, you know doing uh, probably our most political episode we've done on the podcast. You know, it's uh, I think no matter where you fall on the partisan climate of politics in the U.S. or you know, the on the Brexit side, I guess, of the UK, it's like, I think everybody should care about, like, the sanctity of their elections, yeah. unless you're someone who's super disillusioned with democracy now, and, like, thinks the authoritarian rule is, is a better alternative, but it's kind of like, well, do you know how bad that can get? Is like, yeah. we've been living in a healthy democracy for quite some time, so we don't know firsthand. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that I think is, is hard to convey to people, because you know, I've done field research in some very poor, very brutal uh, dictatorships, and I've interviewed a lot of torture victims, I've interviewed a lot of opposition candidates who have been jailed, and, and journalists who have been harassed or jailed, uh, people who have been killed by, by, by governments, their family members. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's one of these things where, like, you sort of say, oh, yeah, democracy is not great. It's not perfect. Things are not going really that well. Uh, it can be much worse. Yeah, it's like, well, yeah. what's the alternative? Yeah, the alternative That's a better, is better. Yeah. yeah. And I guess I should take this. Like, I've actually wondered sometimes about having an, a, a podcast or a project just for Brian's where some Brian's out there might think this is some sort of weird sly workaround to, to unite a bunch of statistically white male people. <laughs> um, I should say that this not that's not what the intention of this project is i just want to you know get that out there <laughs> it's probably a good episode to do that um but yeah let's let's get away from politics and uh, all of that for and just find out a little bit more about what kind of brian you are um just a couple of background questions like how did you end up in the uk first of all like uh, and originally where are you from so I'm, I'm originally from uh, Golden Valley, Minnesota, uh, born and raised, and then I went to college at Carleton College, and also in Minnesota. Um, and yeah, I mean, I ended up in the UK for my master's and PhD, which I did at Oxford. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was one of those things where when you get that offer letter, it's hard to turn down. So I ended up in the UK that way. Uh, and we don't sound like uh, you know. You sound like American. We don't sound like a, you know a, a, North, a Minnesotan. Yeah, well, it's because I, <laughs> I, I guess I grew up in the city. So if I grew up in northern Minnesota, you'd have yeah. more of the accent. Okay. Yeah. All right, let's dive into the Brian questions. Uh, do you know why your parents named you Brian? I don't actually. Uh, I have never really asked them. They, I guess, just like the name. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what about your ancestry? I miss. Are you Irish at all? Klosses? Yeah, so my ancestry is half Irish, half German. Uh, Klaus sounds basically. a little more German. Yeah, it's Dutch. German Dutch. So this, the, the the Brian side, I guess, is more the Irish, uh, and the Klaus is more the the Dutch German side. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, 
So you don't necessarily know why then they named it with an I versus a Y either. I have no idea, but I do not like the Y. <laughs> I, I always am very careful to make sure it's Brian with an I. <laughs> oh, are we retreating into the tribalistic uh, rhetoric here now? <laughs> well, yeah, but there's also the, the other funny thing is I, I don't know if you've ever had somebody say this to you or if you've ever experienced this, but when I've said Brian with an I before, I got a Starbucks cup that had B-R-I-A-N-I. Because I said Brian with an I. Oh God! Yeah, I've seen the weirdest spellings all all over the place now, and like especially on cups. Yeah, it's a big uh, it's a big thing. Um, what about your siblings' name? Just where does Brian fit in? Uh, Anne and James. So yeah, they're I don't know. They're sort of normal American names from the nineteen eighties. <laughs> okay, it makes but sense had, in the context. Know, the, the one of the funny things about being a Brian in the UK though is uh, when people meet me, they're surprised at how young I am. Because Brian is an older name in the UK, it is a name that is a, a generationally uh, much older. So you know, yeah, you know, that's like what Monty I've heard. Python. Yeah, like Monty Python, Life of Brian. You know, it's one of these. It's sort of the way it's been explained to me, and I don't know how true this is, but they sort of say it's like Harold in the US, right? Like you, you would expect uh, a Harold yeah. or like a Hazel, uh, which is my my, my gra- was my grandma's name. That you sort of have like those names mean that they're going to be like seventy years old, and in the US, I know that. I was born in the mid '80s, and uh, you know, I think the year that I was born, Brian was like one of the top ten names. So, and, and every class that I was in in elementary school, yeah. it was like you know four or five Brians. I've been on projects at work where there have been five Brians on the same project. Yeah. I was and... Brian K for a lot of it. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, now is it? I mean, maybe I'm meeting a lot more the Liams and the Brains and the Connors. Yeah, yeah. The, the trendier if they're going Irish style, if, you know. Yeah, for sure. And there's, but there's a lot of new names that you don't recognize either. But I mean, I think it's one of these things where, uh, yeah, that generational gap I was totally not aware of because people just would be like, "Oh my gosh, you're young." <laughs> I was like, "Why do you say that?" And this, well, your name. <laughs> All right, UK uh, Brian uh, parents and whoever uh, you know, baby makers. You know, <laughs> consider the Brian, <laughs> so we can uh, live on. Um, all right, what would, what would have you named? Anything? Uh, a car? A rock? A bike? Uh, yeah, I mean, I haven't had my own pets. I had, um, I helped raise a, a puppy for a NGO that basically does service dogs back in Minnesota, but I didn't get to name it. It was called Darwin, because uh-huh. um, the, the people who donated money for the puppy uh, got the naming rights. So yeah, I haven't had a lot of naming. I tend to find Brian's are good at naming stuff. They're usually pretty skilled at like coming up with interesting well, names. Well, I'm going to be put to the test eventually, but not yet. Yeah. So, so two-part question, dead or alive. Uh, one other Brian to meet, who would it be? And then also, fav- favorite Brian of all time. Oh, goodness. So uh, here, I usually bust out this outdated cheat sheet if you want to like... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if you want to pull from this at all or spark anything and i think brian cranston despite the why uh would be high up on the list yeah uh, yep he's it, he's the one he's breaking down the barriers yeah i mean i to be fair i uh, it's like i lived in a cave though because i only watched i literally finished watching breaking bad like a month ago yeah I, I started watching breaking bad like a month ago so he's fresh so, yeah I mean, <laughs> but it's one of these things where uh yeah and a fascinating actor um the Brian from Life of Brian is a good choice too. Uh, yeah, oh, fictional Brian. Up, there we go. Grew up watching um, Monty Python, so that one always is stuck with me. Okay, so damn that actually. Well, the that takes us to our trivia question, which I think you'll find apt. Uh, which British-made fictional Brian is now much more accessible in the United States? Uh, a hint because of Netflix. 
Is this not Life of Brian? It is. Wait, a, it is the Life of Brian. So, I mean, <laughs> that wasn't very hard. I actually have a much harder question. But I'm probably going to be very poorly. Let's see if you can do this much harder. It's, a, it's another uh, British-related one, which Brian is a beloved character in the BBC series The Magical Roundabout, which aired in the 60s and 70s, oh God. also relating to the popularity of the Brian's back then. Uh, hint, uh, this fictional Brian was super slow. I have no idea. I didn't know. I didn't know this Brian either until doing this project. It's Brian the Snail. Oh right. Okay. Yeah. So Brian had, the Snail. I had like t- like ten years ago. Somebody got me a thing called Brian the Brain. I don't know if you've ever heard about this, but it's like it was like is this, this a robot. Yeah, it's like a little robot that you can oh, like yeah. ask questions to. Yeah. Uh, the ads for that are hilarious. Yeah. I found them on YouTube. Well, it, it like malfunctioned though, like a month after I got it, and started. It speaks very loudly. Like it's supposed yeah. to only speak when you turn it on and you speak to it, right? But like. There's one night, like, It's like a crappy ago. Alexa or a... Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Like but, like ten, but, like, ten years ago, I, I was, like, at two in the morning. All of a sudden, this thing started shouting. And I was terrified that someone was in my apartment. This was back in Minnesota. Uh, and it was just Brian the Brain trying to keep me company, so... <laughs> Whatever happened to him? Uh, I threw it away because it kept doing that. No, so. <laughs> you should have kept that guy around. Oh, uh, uh, don't throw away another Brian. Yeah, crime, crimes against Brian's. <laughs> Come on. All right, so even harder question, not trivial related, but if you had to choose a first name other than Brian, what would it be? Uh, for myself. Yeah. Uh, this is a this is a very tough question. I guess I mean so my middle name is Paul. Uh, it's a family name, so yeah. I think it's a good name. Um, it's my dad's name. It's what my grandpa went by. Uh, so I, I guess I'll do the cop out and go with the middle name. Okay, no, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Um, I actually I also had a. Probably shouldn't say this publicly, but I, I um, when, when no, I was only Brian's are listening. We're, yeah. all, we're all we're all we're all friends here. <laughs> no, when I was when I was a kid, my one of my nicknames when I was uh, like six was Bryax because Bryax. yeah because I couldn't write N's. I, I for whatever reason I was like really bad at handwriting, and so uh, I, I the N was too hard for me as like a five year old. <laughs> so I signed everything with an X for instead of the N. So oh, Bryax, no, no, you're gonna get the trolls are gonna troll you about yeah, this. Yeah, no, that's true. That's right. Yeah. I, that's okay. I think. I mean, if you're gonna go after somebody for their five year old yeah. self, then, Bryax. Uh, you might want to get something else to do with your life. So. <laughs> so do you believe there are any shared common characteristics or personality traits that might stem from being a Brian? I'm not sure. I think that we're all uh, intelligent and beautiful animals. So uh, every Brian I've so met. So the Brian's been, that, yeah, <laughs> that you've, you've, met, you've noticed and that you've met in your life, no shared my, threads. My best friend uh, growing up was named Brian. He lived uh, three doors down from me. Um, Brian Did Dalman you guys start a band or what? No, actually. The three, do- three doors? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, he, he was my best friend growing up. And then uh, the only real friend that I'm still in close contact with um, from high school is also named Brian, who bizarrely enough lives in London. So he, he went to oh, high school awesome. in Minnesota, but he's, he's based here too. So um, yeah, so the Brians have stuck together um, yeah. across continents. Yeah, we're a gregarious bunch that tend to get along. <laughs> What uh, overall would you say being a Brian has been a plus or a minus in your life? I think it's a plus. Uh, it's a short. It's a short name, which is nice. Uh, one of the things that's that's nice is that my first name and my last name have the same number of letters, so it works really well for like books. Because oh it's, yeah, it yeah. just fits easy just for the fits, typesetters yeah. or the the layouts. Yeah. The you Twitter know. handle you can have it. You know, if my name was like Horatio or something like that, yeah. it'd be too many characters. And <laughs> yeah, so. Overall, I think it's a plus. Uh, I think it was reasonably generic in the United States at the time, 
But uh, but yeah, now now I've differentiated myself by being a young Brian in the UK. Young Brian. So there you go. Um. So yeah, here's a UK Brian question. Did you experience a uh, storm Brian here in London? I know it hit uh, the UK last October, but I think it was like mostly like northern like Ireland. I don't know if there was yeah, any of that hitting here. Every time that there's like a storm in the UK, it's one of these things where it's not the same as like a hurricane in the US, right? So you, yeah. like storm Brian, uh, I think technically hit london but it was just sort like, of like, like more rain it, it was just more windy than usual and, yeah uh, a bit rainier um so you know i think it was of of all the storms one of the better ones which you'd expect from it being named brian so i heartily approve of it um thoughts on the royal baby not being named brian uh con i think it's a i think it's a con uh, yeah definitely definitely yeah uh i'm not pro non-Brian royal babies. Now, I, uh, I think that the problem is, though, that there's not a, a royal legacy of Brian's, which should eventually change, but there, are, there, is, there seems like there's this pool of names by which you can name babies uh, yeah. in the royal family, and Brian, unfortunately, doesn't seem to be one of them. So Yeah, well, we can, we can you know, create some le- legislation to try to introduce <laughs> this into... I don't know how the government here works. But. If I meet the queen, I'll let her know. Yeah. Uh, she should okay. work on it. So let's just end the, end the episode with uh, any message you'd like to say to all the Bryans out there. Uh, I guess us Bryans must stick together and uh, say hello if you come over to London. All right. Great. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks so much, Brian. Uh, you can find more about Brian at Brian Kloss. Uh, that's K-L-A-A-S dot com or at Brian Kloss uh, on Twitter.